Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound Today's A Public Affair is a conversation between Ali Muldrow and ProPublica reporters Ash New and Logan Jaffe. In 1990, the Native American Graves Protections and Repatriation Act called for all remains to be returned to descendants or tribal nations. But in more than 30 years since the passage of that law, many U.S. museums and universities have been reluctant to give the remains back. Here is Ali Muldrow in conversation with Ash New and Logan Jaffe. Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. And today we're going to have a conversation about the fact that there is over 100,000 ancestors of indigenous people are currently being kept in U.S. museums and universities. Logan, how, what does it look like for you as a reporter to, to cover, um, you know, the, the remains that are, are being kept from, from tribal communities that are not being laid to rest in, in the way um, that, that folks would want their, their ancestors, their families to be, you know, laid to rest? Yeah, um, just as a reporter, and by the way, I, you know, my name's Logan Jaffe. I'm a reporter at ProPublica, and I've been there for about five years, and I'm based in Chicago, so not far from you all in Madison. Um, And I guess what it's been like for me is when I even learned about what the Native American Graves Protection and and Repatriation Act was, it's just that initial shock that Uh, of becoming aware of something that is so um, pervasive and so present, but not in so many museums that you can probably just name off in your own community, in your own state, and just knowing something that, you know, is publicly available to know, but is literally something that is... um, uh, taking place not in the public forefront. And that is for, that is me speaking um, as a reporter. And, and this is very different. And I am, I am not, you know, speaking on behalf of any tribes or what any tribal citizen might approach this. <laughs> but because I think if you're very involved with this, it is very much at the forefront of your mind and something that you might have even grown up knowing about. Mm. I did not grow up knowing about this, but I I guess I wasn't shocked or surprised. I think the level of theft and cruelty that the United States has as part of its current reality and part of its history um, is something I think we, we all become more and more aware of, and it becomes less and less shocking the more you learn. For you, Ash New, as, as somebody who is also telling this story, what has it meant to you to, to cover um, you know, these institutions that are reluctant to give people the remains of their families back. Yeah, I think for me, as I was, I, I sort of came from a similar um, perspective as Logan. I'm, I'm not Native. I grew up in California, um, where there is a very long history of Native Americans in the, re- in the region. And I grew up going to a lot of, you know, schools and, and places and, um, other um, parts of the state that were named after the, the indigenous peoples of that area. Um, but my awareness, you know, as an Asian American person who grew up um, child of immigrants, I, I really didn't think that much out um, the Native American experience um, in my state and let alone um, throughout the entire country. Um, and as I sort of got deeper into researching this topic um just it's it's so complex it's very nuanced you're covering thousands of years of history um and uh the law that was put into place it's sort of concerning that uh the law puts the the institutions themselves in the position 
um, to decide what to do with the remains. And, um, you know, they're supposed to follow this process, but there is a lot of leeway and there are kind of these loopholes which allow institutions that are reluctant to return remains for various reasons um, to sort of lean into that. Ashnu, can I ask you to to describe what a loophole looks like? I think it's weird to think about like, what could justify you keeping the remains of somebody else's family members? What are what are the loopholes or things that are done to accommodate institutions, universities, and museums that want to keep um, the you know that want to keep people's remains? And why do these institutions? Why do they want to keep these these people's remains? Uh, to a large degree, it's um, for the potential scientific value. Uh, in the remains. So um, there's a sort of compulsion, I think, within academia to collect, to catalog, to document, and to preserve for future, um, for future people, um, and to uh, potentially use the remains for um, uh, studies into health, uh, into migration, um, into the history of how uh, perhaps the Americas were populated. Um, so it's largely, I think, a scientific interest. There's also uh, the funding aspect. It's rather expensive to sort of put back together these and, and return these remains to um, where they came from. Um, so there's that aspect as well. Uh, as to the loopholes, um, the law requires you to come up with enough evidence to get above like 50%, essentially, to say that these um, ancestral remains and objects are connected to these tribes. Um, and you can use multiple different kinds of evidence. Um, a lot of the time, historically speaking, institutions have prioritized or privileged um, archaeological evidence or anthropo anthropological evidence. So if the archaeological record or consensus is that we, they don't know what happened more than a thousand years ago, um, then the institution, um, and we've seen this happen, is that, you know, they might say, we don't know who these remains belong to, and so we can't return them. Um, and that's sort of called uh, the the culturally unidentified um, remains. It's like a term that is used and that's a common loophole. Is there any limit to how long these institutions can have people's remains? It's been 38 years since this law was passed and, and hundreds of over 100,000 people's remains um, continue to be held by universities and museums. Logan, what what has the last 30 years meant after this law was passed in terms of how institutions have tried or attempted um, to reunite people with, with their ancestors' remains? Yeah, I mean, one one thing that, that you know, we learned from reporting is, um, Ash, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the um, so the National Park Service oversees um, this whole process, the NAGPRA process, and somebody estimated there that when this law was passed in 1990, that it would take 10 years um, to repatriate everything. And this is everything at a minimum. This is just what's known of the known. Um, and here we are, you know, more than 30 years later, and we are um, about halfway, less than halfway a little um, bit less than halfway. A little yeah. bit less than halfway. So, you know, I'm just, you know, looking at our, our page here, 52% um, of remains have not been returned to tribes. Um, you know, those delays, I mean, I, I guess, like, you know, looking back on the records we have from from transcripts of, of this committee, this national committee that meets to sort of arbitrate and implement the law, um, you've seen an evolution um, but from what we've realized, a lot of there's been a lot of the same conversations happening over and over again, like every five years or so. Um, and, you know, in some ways at a fundamental level, it's like, yeah, this is a human rights issue. But then you're also looking at this question of, OK, 
even if an institution, even if you're going to go and, and like kind of, you know, let's say you're going to agree with an institution that says, you know, these, these ancestral remains are, are very old and we don't know who to repatriate to. Does that mean that the question is that they should be in a museum? You know, like, is that still the same? So that's like a question that keeps being, being brought up. And, you know, some tribal nations do, like, they are okay. And, and, and it's all about like that, that consent and like having those tribes be at the table in making these decisions, you know, it's not, I don't want to paint the idea of repatriation and return, like all with the same exact brush, but it is about like that, um, you know, what does, what would those tribal nations prefer? Um, and, you know, from what we have been able to see, sometimes that works and sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. So, um, I guess going back to the evolution of the law and over the years, um, we see a lot of the same questions being asked, but at certain moments in the law's history, there have been sort of like these pivotal like turning points, like in 2010, um, when the law did create this pathway to be able to um, claim and return ancestral remains that were designated as culturally unidentifiable. I think one of the things that stands out to me in this conversation is you know, for for the fifty two percent of remains that have not been returned to the the communities they come from and to the families that they belong to, um, there's also the forty eight percent that have been been returned. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that process of of returning, um, you know, re- returning the remains of of ancestors has looked like for the 48% that have been returned. And the other question I, I want to talk about is if institutions have a vested interest in keeping these remains for scientific experiments and for things that can garner knowledge and um, profit potentially, what does it look like to uh, share the benefits of of that research or that understanding or, or that profit with the communities that these remains originate from. Sure. I mean, talking about, you know, to address what some instances of return have has looked like, I'll talk about, you know, one um, instance that I know um, that deals with the Illinois State Museum and the Peoria Tribe of Indians of Oklahoma. Um, so the Illinois State Museum was one of these earlier institutions that um, did comply with the law in 1995, um, and it and it did end up repatriating more than 100 ancestral remains to the Peoria Tribe, um, but because of those tribes' wishes, the, the museum also had like tens of thousands and still has tens of thousands of funerary objects that were intentionally buried with those ancestors. Um, the tribe decided at that time that they didn't have uh, like a, a resource or a proper place to be able to safely, you know, um, um, curate and, and care for those belongings. So the museum holds those still, but those ancestors are reburied in, in um, Oklahoma. So there are all sorts of layers to, to this. And I think that some of that is being revisited right now. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's one example. Um, and then there have been other examples um, of, well, some of them haven't gone very well. <laughs> for example, in Alabama, the University of Alabama had tens, I think more than 10,000 ancestral remains. Um, and a number of tribes, like a coalition of tribes that are indigenous to south, uh, to the southeast part of the country, tried to reclaim them from the University of Alabama for like more than a decade. And the University of Alabama kept saying, no, we don't know who the you know proper tribes are to return them to. And the tribe had, or the tribal coalition had to go to the federal review committee and spend a lot of time, spend a lot of money trying to just prove something that they know. <laughs> and so that was eventually, those ancestors were eventually repatriated. But that, you know, from what we know from talking with those tribal leaders, that was a really painful process. Um, 
and they really kind of run the gamut. Yeah, I think it's hard for most people to imagine what it would be like to say, hey, you stole, you know, the 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 remains of someone I love or the remains of my people or you stole aspects of my culture. And now rather than willingly returning that, you're asking me to prove that I was robbed. Um feels like a really traumatizing experience. And and I I was curious, you know, how often are the institutions doing the work of finding the people and connecting the dots? Or how often are they kind of passively waiting for somebody to say, hey, I, I want my, my community's remains back? I think these are, are really complicated questions. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about a new report that finds that more than half of the stolen remains of Native of Native American people have not been returned to their descendants or tribal nations. Join us to talk about their findings. Um, join us to talk about the findings uh, that our reporters Logan, Jaffe, and Ash knew um, have been have been following this story or writing about this story. And if you'd like to join the conversation or ask them questions, give us a call today at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter at WORT Talk or on the Public Affair page on Facebook. So there's all kinds of ways to participate in this conversation if you have questions about this. Ash, I want to ask you, um, have you been able to connect with tribes and talk to them about what this experience has meant to them, who is making decisions about whether or not to claim these remains, um, how folks want to preserve this history or utilize these remains, um, you know, moving forward? Yeah, I think we've spoken to a number of tribes um, through the representatives, either tribal historic preservation officers or sort of cultural resource directors. Um, and, you know, it really varies the perspective on repatriation. Um, I think one thing that we all we like to say is that, um, you know, tribes, they're not a monolith and many have varying and diverse perspectives on what is appropriate for um, repatriation. Um, some tribes don't have the ceremonies that uh, uh, they would need to sort of um, reclaim their ancestors, their ancestors and rebury them. Um, so it does range. I think um, some of the trends that we've seen um, or like high level um, uh, shared experiences that we've seen, um, I think the repatriation process is very relationship based um, between the tribe and the institution. And we say tribe and institution like these two sort of abstract entities, but on the ground level, what that means is the people who work at these institutions and the people who work for the tribes. Um, and it can be tough for those two parties to really develop a relationship, especially when there's really high turnover um, within tribes as to those positions. I think funding is a huge um, issue that, uh, that tribes always um, cite when, when um, explaining some of their challenges. Um, and uh, I think if you're able to sort of have a long-term relationship, you know, repatriations take can take years. Um, and uh, from the time when the tribe first requests um, or submits a claim for the remains all the way to the physical return. Um, and so uh, some relationships are really positive. I think there is sort of a... Um, understanding amongst people who work in this space as to who are the institutions that are uh, very sort of uh, respectful, transparent, um, uh, proactive about engaging with the tribes. And there is a, a subset of institutions that have a poor reputation. Um, and that's sort of in the like whisper network of, you know, folks that we've talked to, we've heard these anecdotes as well. Um, I don't really know, like, percentage-wise, um, but I think uh, it's safe to say that both those experiences have been had. I think um, within institutions and within sort of anthropology and archaeology, there is kind of a changing of the guard happening. Um, we are seeing younger um, NAGPRA coordinators. We're also just seeing 
like first time NAGPRA coordinators, some of these institutions haven't had anyone full time responsible for this kind of work um, until very recently. Um, for instance, the University of Kentucky, Logan, recently put up um, a few hundred yeah. thousand dollars dedicated towards NAGPRA work, and that is allowing them to hire people full time um, to do this work and, and give it the focus that it's properly due. Yeah, I just want to say, like with with Kentucky, it's it's almost nine hundred thousand dollars, and this is an institution that had zero repatriations. So this is the first time. I mean, they have had staff, and they have, you know, a, a very limited number of staff in their anthropology department or, or their museum system there. Um, but in so many cases, it, even at even at very wealthy institutions, there's maybe one or two people who are like on the institution side who who is you know responsible for really seeing this work through and some tribal leaders you know if there's staff tone turnover it's they lose their whole connection and feel like they often have to start over so it can be really frustrating logan i so greatly speak appreciate you speaking to kind of the logistics of of what this process looks like Ash, I want to go back to something you said, though, right before we, we kind of dove into what this process looks like or what it means to staff this process. Um, you said, you know, there's kind of two different approaches from institutions. You have institutions that are more transparent and more cooperative, and then you have institutions that are really hard for tribes to work with, um, are really uninterested in healthy communication or good relationships with the tribes and have a sense of entitlement and ownership towards um, the remains of folks' ancestors. I, I, I'm curious if you have folks who, who kind of in, in our modern world go, hey, I recognize that this isn't cool. We should make sure that these people are laid to rest in a way that is culturally appropriate. Um, was that happening before the 1990 law? Was anybody saying, "Hey, we recognize that we've gotta, we've gotta give the remains back to tribes," and it didn't take a, a federal law for them to do it? Yeah, I would say that um, there have been people who were doing repatriations before the law. Um, the national, the federal law was preceded by some state laws um, that kind of got to this issue. Um, there were also institutions that sort of took it upon themselves to do what they thought was um, was right. Um, for instance, uh, one one anecdote that came up recently is uh, Stanford University in California did a relatively large repatriation. They repatriated um, the vast majority of the individuals who were in their collections um, to the indigenous tribes of that area. Um, I think it was in 88 and 89. Um, so there was momentum, I think, before this law was passed that um, preceded uh, uh, the NAGPRA. Um, Thank you for, for speaking to that. I think it's interesting to understand that this is a long-term conversation. And there is, you know, I think in the American psyche, a deep desire to go, wait, that happened a super long time ago. Like, does anybody even care? Does it even matter? Logan, what do you say to the folks who go, hey, this isn't really that big a deal. People don't even notice that these remains are gone. Like, this happened generations ago. It's not people's immediate families saying, hey, we want to be able to visit, you know, the gravesite of, of our auntie or our uncle. Um, you know, what do, what do you say when people say so much time has passed, this doesn't matter anymore? Yeah, well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to bring up because I, at least, you know, from the reporting we've done, that's basically the argument of resistant institutions that don't want to repatriate. So this is can be on a one on one level. And it's also, you know, it so much translates to an institutional level. And that's where you get like some serious, you know, like money and power issues like intersecting with that. Um, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> I guess another another way to reply to that is, you know, people could feel all, so all sorts of ways. But the fact is that this is it's the law that you that institution um, if you receive federal money um, and you know you're a museum or even federal agencies you have to at least submit your your inventories and tell the government what you have um, so 
yeah, I mean, the argument that there are that these that some of these ancestors are really old and this all happened long ago. There are still more there's still a hundred more than 110,000 ancestral human remains out there. And that is a direct link to that history. And this is a history um, that is brutal and that is still we're still like feeling the results of that today. And there's no denying that. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Ash, I, I want to ask you both, uh, you know, as you've been writing about this, as you've been telling this story, has it made you think about your own cultural relationship to death, your own cultural relationship to being buried or being put to rest? Um, have you have you thought about, you know, how this applies to you and your your family and what you want for for yourself? I actually haven't really. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you've asked me, I am sort of thinking about it. Um, I mean, to speak quite frankly, um, I think, well, okay, that's that's a bit disingenuous. I think, um, you know, my own history, uh, personally speaking, my, my family, um, my parents are both immigrants to this country. Uh, my, my grandparents before that um, are immigrants from China. So it's like, kind of two waves of immigration. They went from China to Indonesia and Malaysia, and then from Indonesia and Malaysia to the United States. Um, and so for me, my identity as a person who is, you know, Asian American um, has always been rather muddled. Um, and I think um, uh, presumably my family uh, came from a town in China because um, my parents both speak the same dialect, even though they came through different geographic pathways. Um, but I've never really known a lot about my ancestry. I don't really, I can't really see beyond my great grandparents. And even what I know about my great grandparents is very shaky. Um, I've never been to China. Um, I think um, sort of my relationship to um, Chinese culture is. Uh, I mean, I don't even know how to, do, it's it's very sort of abstract for me. Um, but I do think that um, uh, in terms of what I've been primed to be interested in and sort of just personally sort of curious about is my own background and where I come from. And um, I think for, you know, as to this topic of, of the repatriation of Native, Native American remains, um, it really hits to the core of identity and what it means to have um, sort of ownership over your narrative, over your culture's narrative, um, and to to feel empowered in that regard. Um, and I think information is really important to that. And I think you know control over um, uh, th those sort of sources of information um, is really powerful and important. I think there's something about the idea of having your remains stolen and put on display or kept by an institution that feels like this never ending violation, um, this never ending theft that even in death, um, you, you can't be put to rest and you're still being oppressed. Um, you're still being exploited um, beyond beyond your lifespan. Logan, have you thought about, you know, your your relationship to um, your culture or what it means to, to bury the people in your family or to lay folks to rest? And, and how has this, you know, doing this reporting uh, shifted your perspective on, you know, how to honor the wishes of, of the people we've lost? Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking, I, I've been thinking about that a bit throughout this project and, you know, especially, you know, just listening to Ash right now um, speak to that. It, it actually reminded me. So I'm, I'm white, I'm Jewish, and, you know, part of my family is, is, has really deep roots in the South. So in, in Eastern Tennessee and, and kind of that Appalachian area. And, you know, last summer, uh, I went with my sibling and visited graves in, of my, in a very small, like, mountain town um, of family members who, who went back generations and generations and generations. And, you know, thinking about, just like the privilege to be able to go to a place and know where they are buried and sort of there's an implication and an assumption that they're going to stay there. 
that's not the case <laughs> for for indigenous for many indigenous people who are thinking about their ancestry um, in 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 this land, <laughs> and that is, I think at I think at its core is is outrageous that that's something that the humanity can can in some ways um you know be stripped from you know, what 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 i guess one can assume is the intention of of those ancestors who buried their their loved ones however long it was ago is that that was their intention but that is so um it can be so disregarded at times in the present Do you get the impression from institutions that are navigating this process that there is a lack of sensitivity to the the overwhelming history of oppression that indigenous people in America have experienced? And uh, Ashnu, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. Um, how how do how do the institutions kind of connect to the the emotional impact or the human impact of you know, withholding remains um, from from communities and, and, and tribes. Yeah, I think it does range quite a bit. Um, I think there are people who have worked for a long time in repatriation who um, have really seen uh, the sort of grievances and the, the conflict of interest that exists between tribes and institutions um, and have uh, really dedicated their lives to trying to work together um, and and pull these two um, together. Um, I think with institutions that um, have taken a more resistant stance towards repatriation. Um, I think there's an intellectual understanding of what occurred, um, sort of the play-by-play -play, uh, facts of, of history. Um, but I think, and you know, even within myself, there's this recognition that I'm not native. I don't. I don't have um, the intuition for what that feels like emotionally. Um, I'm always playing catch up. I am frequently deferring, I think, to listen to the tribal perspective um, and being aware of how painful this is for people to recount and to have to fight for um, and to face challenges with. Um, it's you know, in my own family, I don't have a history of genocide. I don't have a history of dispossession. I don't have a history of displacement in that sense, um, to that degree. And I, I'm not really sure that it's something that you can ever say, I understand this. I think you really just have to um, have some humility in that regard. Um, and I'm not sure that um, that is always the case with institutions that um, privilege sort of the scientific interest above um, the human rights of, of tribes. Ash, I can't thank you enough for, for speaking to that and to, for speaking to it with, you know, such reflection in terms of your own identity. Um, and I think you've, you've done that throughout this conversation to say, like, based on my positionality, my history, my family, you know, I don't, I don't know if there are parts of this I can speak to or understand fully. Logan, I want to ask you, you also, you know, named your identities as, as part of this conversation. When you think about, like, covering this kind of story, telling this kind of story, do you say, hey, am I another white person who is misappropriating the experiences of Indigenous people? And how do you balance your identity and your whiteness um, with the, the need for this story to be told, the need for people to know that this is happening um, and, you know, to, to tell this story in a way that is compelling and humanizing? Yeah, I mean, that's a great um, question. And it's something that, you know, I have asked myself at multiple times, like through reporting on this. And I think, you know, um, very much in in even just asking for, for interviews from tribal leaders, um, 
really just approaching this from a standpoint of nothing should be expected or assumed in whether people will even want to talk to you about this at all. Um, and in such cases, as I'd, you know, been reporting on this, if that was the case, I'd say, you know, okay, um, I'm not going to ask, you know, you again, and I want you to know that you don't have to worry about me asking you again, but here's my information if you want, if you ever, you know, um, do want to speak out about this in, in, in this way, in this way that we are, you know, asking you to like for it through journalism, you know, which is its own, you know, approach there. Um, but yeah, I, I think not assuming anything and really kind of letting, leaving room for your, all of your assumptions to be, to be challenged because, you know, we've been talking a lot about the relationship between scientific interests and, and tribal interests, those also aren't mutually exclusive. Like there are a lot of intersections and overlaps there. And um, I think it, it would be easy for somebody, you know, who is an outsider to these issues and especially somebody who's white to just make the assumption that, oh, you're, you're indigenous or you're a tribal citizen and this is obviously what you want to happen um no <laughs> you know so i've had to be really mindful of you know what assumptions that i'm even bringing to this project in the first place i really appreciate you opening up to kind of like you come into this with assumptions and i think part of the question i asked about this happening a long 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 time ago is i think there is an assumption um that you know, that things happened hundreds of years ago or things happened, you know, you know, pre the United States during the, the you know, original 13 colonies. Can you talk about kind of the timeline, Ash, of when most of these remains were stolen, when they were taken and, and given to institutions? Um, how, how far back is that history or how recently has that happened or been done? Um, so the taking of remains um, has been a part of American history, I would say, probably from day one. Not sure when day one is, but um, it's, you know, uh, a large amount of remains were taken in the 18th century um, when museums were just starting to, um, in the United States, were just starting to come into being, were trying to compete. Uh, with each other to have sort of this best quote-unquote encyclopedic collection of the indigenous peoples of the continent. Um, that sort of uh, appetite for remains and objects led to a lot of uh, what some people would call excavation and what some people would call looting. I think the degree to which it's sort of a fuzzy spectrum um, when you're taking and um, there's not, like there were no field notes, there was no carefulness um involved. I think when you get into the later 19th century and 20th century, you see anthropology and archeology span um, as fields sort of professionalize and work with the government on these quite large excavations during dam development projects, um, during other infrastructure projects. Um, and um, working um, with uh, these federal agencies, and in some cases with the tribes as well, to try and salvage um, sites before they were um, flooded or otherwise destroyed by these projects. Um, and I think there's also a large number of remains that came from amateur people who thought that they were collecting, um, who came across these um, remains or objects on their properties um, who then donated. I mean, there's just countless of notes of, of in these files of gifted from so-and-so, donated by so-and-so. Um, so-and-so's grandfather passed it, died and passed it down to his, you know, son who gave it to the museum. Um, uh, the the bird guy, the Audubon guy, is named in some of the records for having also collected human remains. 
um, just the extent to which this was very common practice and not sort of blinked at because, um, you know, Indigenous people were seen as less than, were seen as inferior. And so it's really, I think, a part of the fabric of American history and culture. Um, and that's something that repatriation is, as a, as a process, I think, is um, working to set right. So I want to ask, when you say Indigenous people were seen as inferior, do you believe that Indigenous people in the United States of America are no longer seen as inferior, are no longer seen as less than? And that's part of the reason why we can have this kind of reconciliation um, is that, you know, we've come to the collective understanding that Indigenous people are 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 human beings that are just as valid as everybody else? Or do you think that we're still engaged in a debate of who is superior and who is inferior in our country? Wow, big question. <laughs> um, I think in response to that, I would I would want to defer to sort of the experience of Indigenous people, you know, do they feel like they are validated and seen and heard? Um, I think the country as a whole has um, a duty to these sovereign nations um, that it is in many ways failing to uphold its side of the bargain. Um, and uh, that means that tribes are drastically under-resourced, um, are facing a number of challenges uh, based on, you know, the land that they're on um, uh, in many cases is not like ideal parts of the country to live in and especially with climate change um, and other sort of um, uh, infra land infringements, um, it, it makes it really difficult to cultivate a life in these parts of the country. Um, I think the systemic sort of racism that has been part of the country's history continues. Um, yeah, I think the, the sort of conscious bias that people have, I, I think a lot of folks would maybe say that they don't have that, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I think about this, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Today is Tuesday. It is a very cold Tuesday in Wisconsin, um, and it's the last Tuesday in January. Tomorrow marks the beginning of Black History Month. I am interviewing reporters Logan Jaffe and Ash New, um, and I, I want to lean into what what you just named in terms of you know, the reality of the conditions of indigenous people in America today. Um, you know, as as it was hard for me in, in reading what you all have written um, to not compare it to black history, particularly because I just was reading Clint Smith's book. Um, and there is a point where someone says, I, I was doing a tour of a plantation and I recognized a photo of a relative in the tour. And I thought, oh, our family has never given you permission to talk about our story, to tell our story, to display our images. Um, you know, I, I think about the prevalence of, of racialized hate and, and some folks would name that, you know, in the last two years that there is a growing intolerance towards people who are different, towards the LGBTQ community. Um, and then I think about, you know, what happens in schools and the fact that so many of our young people can't name the indigenous tribes that, you know, were originally on the land that their school is on right now. Logan, can you talk a little bit about, you know, where this this reporting has allowed you to see healing or reconciliation of historical trauma. Wow, um, I think through the reporting where we've, you know, saw some parts of that um, are in the consultation process and in some parts of of you know of the law. So. Um, you know, the, every, every institution and every tribe, when they are, you know, go, going through claiming their their ancestors, and it, it's 
there's a bit of of reconciliation in the extent to which it's still very held by the institutional power, though, if, if you think about it, because um, it's up to the institution to either agree or allow uh, or listen to like what tribal wishes are throughout even the consultation process. So, um, you know, I can talk a bit about the Illinois State Museum, which did, you know, for the for, you know, it, it a coalition of tribes wanted their ancestors to be reunited with a lot of the funerary objects that they had been buried with originally. The museum, and this is a common museum practice, they had, you know, separated various objects, stripped them of the context from which they were laid, laid to rest and originally buried. And, you know, the tribes had, you know, told the museum, we cannot really like have these sorts of conversations in good faith unless like we know that that you know these these that these ancestors and items are are together so that involved the museum basically closing its entire archaeology exhibit and dismantling almost half of the entire exhibit you know that's what brought people to that institution like visitors so I, I, you know, I can't say what that felt like. I can't say if that's satisfying. Um, I'm not a part of these processes, but I do think that um, for institutions that have entered this process with a mindset that they're going to at least try to right a wrong in the ways that they can, um, you know, from what I understand, it can be a meaningful uh, gesture of reconciling. And I would also add on the point of the intersection of of this topic of the repatriation of Native American remains um, with the Black experience. Um, there's also um, the remains of enslaved individuals that um, museums and institutions still have. And those have come to light in some recent news articles um, at some quite um, old and prestigious institutions where the treatment of of remains of these human remains of both black people and indigenous people i think have been um uh treated as less than and have been the, that's why they're in these institutions um that's why they were collected in the first place and kept and in some cases used for teaching used for research um and so there is definitely that intersection that you raise um and I also think that in terms of healing, um, I think it's funny when uh, people use sort of trade the word reparations with repatriation because in many ways, repatriation is a way to make amends. It is a way to um, engage in the act of reparations. Um, and uh, I think for the folks who have been working in this space for a really long time. Um, they work on repatriation because they want to set things right. I have pushed back on, on this movement to kind of uh, get rid of Confederate monuments or address the racism of the past. And one of the reasons I've pushed back against it is because I think talking about how we recover the race from the racism that happened hundreds of years ago doesn't necessarily talk about how we do right by the people who are living um, in marginalized identities right now. As reporters, why is this one of the more important stories you could be telling right now? Um, Ash, I want to I want to start with you and then we'll move over to you, Logan. The question of priorities is a good one. And I think, um, you know, even even amongst tribes, I think there are sometimes repatriation takes a backseat to other more pressing issues that they need to dedicate resources to. Um, I think with this issue, we saw an opportunity to um, revisit a law that was passed near a generation ago. Um, and to resurface that, I think we saw that there was a lot of um, movement in the space, a lot of change in, in staff, in sort of the um, 
strategies or, or philosophies that institutions were taking to repatriate. Um, and I think as well with the new administration, um, we were aware of some you know policy changes that were upcoming um, that in terms of timing, um, you know, we wanted to sort of speak to um, why uh, the law is being revisited and the regulations are being revisited at this point. Um, I think uh, with, you know, there's always topics that, that we could be pursuing and that we have to sort of put down in order to pick one and focus. Um, I think the good thing about this topic is that it's led to other doors opening. Um, we have built relationships with sources in the space. Um, we have had you know, other ideas be brought to us for things that um, people feel need to be addressed and brought to light. Um, so it's not, I think, necessarily choosing one above the other, but sort of just choosing a place to start. Ash, thank you so much for speaking to that. Logan, I want to ask you, if you if folks want to learn more, want to follow this story, are you all going to continue to write about this? And what does that look like? And where can people find this story if they want to know more about what you all are reporting on? Sure. Thanks for the question. So, um, yeah, if you go to ProPublica.org um, or just type in the Repatriation Project on Google or whatever search engine you use, I'm, I'm sure you'll see... Um, our reporting, and we are absolutely going to keep reporting on this. Um, you know, we we call it the Repatriation Project. It's an ongoing series. Um, we've got a newsletter. Uh, we we write about every week, and we've got at least at least three to four more stories coming in the next you know month or two. And um, we're getting tons of emails from people. Um, who are really interested, who are, you know, telling us more about their own experiences with this. And if you have your own experience and you'd like to share that, uh, we have our email address, which is repatriation at propublica.org. Thank you both so much for joining us today on WORT. Thank you all for the work you're doing to report on this story. Huge shout out to our, our producer, Jade, for finding you all. Thanks for listening to WORT, y'all. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopter.